The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become podcasts. Hello there, welcome to The Dragon Reread. We're rereading Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series of fantasy novels. I'm Jeff Lake. I'm Alice Sullivan. And I'm Micah Sparkman. Today we're going to cover chapters 21 through 25 of The Eye of the World, book one of The Wheel of Time. Uh, so last time, <laughs> Nynaeve and Moiraine had a really awkward stare down, but it was all cool because everyone partied really hard at the stag and the lion afterwards. It just got really <laughs> down. But unfortunately, the party was was cut short by a Merdril appearing, and you know Moiraine got to show off with her big fancy magics, throwing around earth and fire and stuff. Uh, the boys went for a walk in Deadville because that's what you do when you find yourself in a city of the dead—is you just go for a walk. And they made a new friend who tried <laughs> to consume their souls, like new friends often do. And then, caught between Trollocs and an ancient Eldritch Horror, the boys decide to become pirates. They're not pirates. They're kind of pirates. They're just traitors. I mean, come on. They're honest traitors. Like, he was kind of a pirate. <laughs> he was piratical. He talked like a pirate. He talked like an a alieners. That's racist. Uh, look, I, I, I'm not saying all alieners are pirates, but I mean, <laughs> most of them are. <laughs> all right. Yeah, that's what happened last time. Uh, and that brings us up to... Chapter 21, Listen to the Wind, which has a little icon of a what I think is a staff. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I think it's a wisdom staff. A wisdom staff. So yeah. Wait, is that a thing we know about? Well, she carries a stick around with her that she uses to wallop people in the village. That's so. a good point. <laughs> so yeah. naturally, that's her symbol, right? <laughs> exactly. The symbol of Nynaeve is the stick she uses it's to beat people. It's stick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, wisdom stick. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we're calling it. Yeah. Right. Okay, so this, is, this chapter is from the perspective of Nynaeve. And she wakes up next to the river where she slept. She This is a little vague to me, but I finally figured out she's still on the side of the river of Shadar Logoth. Right. She hasn't crossed the river. Oh, okay. Right. I, I, I didn't find that clear at first. Well, it's difficult to cross that river. I mean, we we, we know that the only people who made it across, well, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss later, obviously, yeah. were people who either had a boat or, like, nearly drowned, right? Yeah, that's right. I think the deal is this river's pretty big, and that was one of the reasons they were going for it, right? Right. Uh, but so uh, the, the Trollocs left her alone. Uh, they, she even saw some Trollocs and they just ignored her because she's not their quarry, which makes her, kind of creeps her out because that means that the Trollocs really are after those, those three farm boys. They know the smell of who they want and that is not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they, uh, she finds Land and Moraine eventually. She sneaks up on them. She's, she's kind of tracking down the river, uh, and runs into them first and, and sneaks up to their campfire where they're having a, a very informative conversation. Yeah, this is like, I think this might be the only time that we, up to this point, where we actually hear Moraine and Lan talking candidly, right? Because, I mean, yeah. usually it's from the perspective of people who they're not, they're, we never have seen anything from Moraine or Lan's perspective. And otherwise, they're usually pretty whispery around other people. Yeah, the things mm-hmm. they say are calculated to get an effect on everything, everybody they see. Right. But it, it seems like with <clears> each other, they're pretty straightforward. And so Lan is wondering how a thousand or more Trollocs got there secretly. Uh, because that's a good question. Traveled across all these countries to to get there, and Moraine says basically that doesn't matter. The whole world will be blown up in five years if we don't solve this problem. Which is because Moraine is like ten out of ten all the time. She she never lets up. Uh, she says one thing that's interesting. She says, "Well, they, how could they do that? The ways are closed, and there's no ace today." Uh, strong enough since the time of madness to move that many trollocs. So. There is magic ways to move around in this world, but apparently they're not accessible, according to Moraine. Right. Mm-hmm. And Moraine mentions that she could probably find them, find the boys through the bond that she has with them. But then uh, Moraine sees Nynaeve through the through the trees, looks right at her, uh, and Lan is shocked 
that Nynaeve snuck up on him. So here's a question I have, though. Because Moraine can kind of sense the boys, right? Right. It's not just her coin. She can... We get the feeling she can sense where they are, because even when they lose the coin, she kind of has a, oh, they're well, in this direction or another, right? I think what she says is, I could sense them down the river, but then it went away. Yeah. I think that's probably when they handed over the coin. Yes. Oh, she said okay. the bond was broken, which I think is implying that when they handed over the coin, at that point, her ability to track them. Okay, because I was wondering if there was more there, because we know that she can <clears> sense <throat> the one power in Egwene and Nynaeve. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if she... Had a sort of her her spidey senses of the one power were were tingling, and so she figured out that Nynaeve was there. Yeah, I think isn't that what she says in this chapter? She says, "You've got so much one power in you that uh, that I I that's how I found you." Yeah, yeah. Uh, so she Nynaeve succeeded in sneaking up on him, but uh, possibly only because Moraine was distracted at at the time. Yeah, uh, and Nynaeve uh, comes at Moraine hard, like she does everybody. Uh, but Moraine shuts her down by saying, you know, I could, I could knew you were there because you can channel. You're, you're a potential Aes Sedai, just like uh, Egwene is. And Nynaeve comes at her hard and says, no, that's BS. You're just <laughs> lying to me. Uh, but Moraine uh, convinces her by giving us all this kind of interesting information about what it's like to be a channeler in this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, first you, when you're hit puberty or something, I guess, you're something... Something you want really, like, a, a lot more than anything you've ever wanted, like surviving drowning or something, happens to you. And then a little bit later, you, you get crazy. You get a fever. Uh, and, it, and these things happen back and forth. And uh, Nenev says, that's exactly what happened to me, because Egwene had, you know... She tells her backstory, which involves her curing Egwene of a breakbone fever, which sounds pretty awful. But in her story, she says, actually, breakbone fever is not that big a deal. Like, that's like, that's a pretty ominous name, right? I mean, like, if you were to get breakbone fever, what would you think would probably happen to your bones? <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. I mean, Good point. I'm not worried about the fever part. <laughs> yeah. But no, it seems like it's fine. Anyway, so she convinces Nynaeve that Nynaeve, in fact, does have the power because she shows all the signs. Right. And uh, Moraine certainly wants to take her along with Egwene to become an Aes Sedai. Mm-hmm. And we get something interesting there, too, I think, when Moraine is describing these things that happen. Maybe you get fevers and chills that disappear after a few hours. You can take foolish chances or act giddy. You can trip and stumble. You can't say a sentence without your tongue mangling half the words. And that's exactly what happened to Rand and Berlon, right? Yeah, how about yeah, that? Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, how strange. Mm-hmm. I wonder what that Yeah, so maybe connection. we have an explanation going on there. Mm. That's right. And it happens, uh, it happens some amount of time after you've channeled uh, unconsciously. Right. And Nynaeve is still incredibly stubborn about this. Uh, she asked Nynaeve, uh, Nynaeve asked Moraine not to tell anybody about it, which Moraine nods. And I, I, that raises a question for me. Can Moraine lie by nodding? Wow, that's a good, I mean, like, that's... She can't lie. Or she doesn't lie. I said I don't lie, but do they nod lie? Well, I mean, <laughs> if it's, it, I guess it depends on the, the way, the wording of the spell if you're a rules lawyer, right? But, I mean, I would I would say that's a lie still if 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 she doesn't if she nods but doesn't mean it. I would say so too, but who it's knows? a question of intent. But yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's... yeah. And uh, Nynaeve says, "Well, that's not uh, that's not why the Trollocs are chasing us. It has what, what's up with the, those boys." And Moraine dodges the question again. She says, "The Dark One wants them. If the Dark One wants a thing, I oppose it." She Which refuses to. Yeah, is she's not an answer. Right. Yeah. That's like Moraine. Is the, the queen of non-answered answers, you know? Right. She always so, has something to say, but it's never quite what you want to hear. So whatever she's hiding, it's a really big deal. Because after what these people have been through, you should tell them. 
Well, you would think, but yeah. I, I get the impression that Moraine would not tell anyone anything unless she found a purpose in it. Like, information to her is, is power, mm-hmm. and so she controls it closely. Yeah, yeah, and I think there is still kind of a... I mean, it's it's mostly one-sided power struggle going on between <clears throat> her and Nynaeve in a lot of ways. I think they both feel possessive of the boys from Eamon's field, and they have their different goals. So I think there's definitely still that power struggle going on. Yeah. And speaking of the power struggle, Moraine very easily manipulates Nynaeve into coming with them. Yeah, I got some reverse <laughs> reverse <laughs> psychology here. Like, you probably don't want to come along, do you? Yeah, you're probably just going to go home like a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> and Nynaeve's like, oh, I'm gonna... <laughs> it, was, it was pretty easy. Yeah, and I I, I would I noted in my notes that uh, Lan is even the best in the world at packing up his camp. <laughs> he packs up his camp super you, fast, you like just a badass. Have such a crush on Lan, don't you? I mean, he's the coolest guy. He, everything he does is cool. Mm-hmm. Say like, his, he, say his full name for me again. Uh, all Lan Mandragoran, the last Lord of the Seven Towers. Got a, little, got a little smile going on there. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying he could probably do a thousand push-ups if he wanted to. So. <laughs> We're saying you're a Lan fan. <laughs> yes, I'm a Laniac. <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's a little there's a little thing between Nynaeve and Lan because Nynaeve snuck up on Lan and he's embarrassed about that. Mm-hmm. No woman sneaks up on Lan, uh, and so he goes off and finds her horse for her, and she thinks, oh, he'll never find my horse. For some reason, I guess she hit her horse. But he does find her horse, so I guess they're square in this little game of tracking that they've got going on. Uh, Lan and Nynaeve's relationship is pretty interesting. Yeah. Oh, no. So what do you think about using a coin as your tracking emblem? That seems like a really bad idea, right? Yeah, <laughs> coins are meant to be spent. Yeah, right. like, if, if you want, like, like if you hand me a $20 bill <laughs> and that's, like, what you put your GPS tracker in, you better believe that's not going <laughs> to track me for very long, right? I mean... It, practically speaking, uh, this, this coin is in the highest denomination any of these people have ever seen. You yeah. Know, they'd probably hang on to that for a while, right? <laughs> yeah. Until they uh, need some money for something, right? I, I mean, mean <laughs> but could you even spend that much in two rivers? I mean, you'd have to be buying, like, a, a horse or a house or something. So you think at the time she gave it to gave it to them, she did not think they were going to be leaving the two rivers anytime soon? I'm not sure, but I'm just saying that giving somebody a silver coin is probably along the equivalent of when the ATM gives you a $100 bill and you just can't break it. <laughs> I, I would, I'm surprised Matt didn't spend that coin in Berlin. <laughs> like, That's true. Yeah. He's like, honey cakes. Yeah, give, give me this many honey cakes and put down the giant silver coin. Okay, if you were uh, a mature woman yeah. and you wanted to give something to, to three teenage boys that they would not get rid of for any length of time, what would you give them? Something useless. A tattoo. <laughs> yeah, so as like we talked about, Moraine has sensed that one boy is across the river and uh, through the coin, I think she actually mentions that the, the coin she gave them is a token. Yeah. A magic she, token. She does tell Nynaeve. And that two went downriver, but then she lost them. And after a discussion, Moraine is really good at breaking down options like this. They decide to go downriver because the, the two, go- the probably the Trollocs and Myrdal went downriver. So that that's the most good they can do. Mm-hmm. And that leads us to chapter 22, A Path Chosen. And the, the symbol is uh, a tree in front of a moon. Can I just say, I really love Robert Jordan's titles for his chapters. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I think they're very descri- they're very descriptive. They give you a, a sense of what is going to show up, but it's never really clear. Like, I'm very excited when we get to chapter 39, Weaving of the Web, and chapter 40, The Web Titans. <laughs> <laughs> so they're foresha- they foreshadow, but they don't, they don't tip your hand, tip yeah. hand either. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. he does a nice job. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I guess he... 
one of the things I like about him as an author is he always feels, at least in these first few books, uh, he has, there's a lot of control. Like mm-hmm. he, he knows where he's going. He's got a plan. Uh, and that's that's part of it. Mm-hmm. So what do you think the tree uh, is representative of? I mean, the moon seems pretty obvious, but... I I have no idea, actually. I think that may be an Aventosaurus tree, uh, which is a, a thing that comes up in the books, but I do not know. The moon is, you know, something relevant to Perrin. Yeah. Uh, but well, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. yeah. So this uh, this chapter <clears throat> is about Perrin, and Perrin, Perrin swam across the river in the, la- in the last chapter, and he wakes up under a pile of branches, because I guess he just piled a bunch of branches on top of himself. Like you do. To hide. And he's like, I don't know, I'm not... I'm not townsfolk. I don't know the tricks to hide. Yeah, I mean, that's like the laziest shelter ever. He walks into, like, a sand of trees and says he, like, cut them off and just <laughs> threw them over himself and fell asleep. But it worked, right? I mean... He's fine. It worked. Yeah. So was was it shelter or was it hiding? I mean, I guess that I makes sense. I think it was hiding. Okay. That's, that's the idea. So he, he's worried about the Trollocs and Mirabral. So he wanted, <laughs> he's dressed up as a, yeah. a pile of brush. And he's lost his cloak, about which he's very sad. Oh, yeah, man. Heartbroken, really. Story's over, really. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. So he's irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so he heads downriver uh, in search of Egwene, who he thinks might have might have crossed the river, and she did. Uh, he finds her, and uh, they have a conversation, and he's got a plan to go overland, abandoning the road straight to Camelin. I think it's fun, actually, how he knows that he's found her. Do you remember what that what the deal was? Uh, was it a track? Yeah. So he the horseshoes he recognizes because he's you know he works for oh, right. He works Master for the made him. Yeah. So he's like, oh hey, these have this little cross pattern that Master Luhan does on all of his. Uh, all his horseshoes, so he knew it was, it was, it was a great. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's a yeah. nice connection. So they're they're heading towards Camelin, cross country, and they're going to skip White Bridge. And, uh, and mo- that's pretty much all that happens in this chapter, except Perrin thinks a lot about how slow and steady he is. <laughs> and, and food. He thinks a lot about food, actually. There's a lot of scenes where he's like looking at more at uh, Egwene's food and being like, hey, how's that? Uh... I want some more of that food. How's your cheese, your bread and cheese? <laughs> yeah. And so like, no. <laughs> yeah, he's. Uh, I mean, he's a big guy. He hasn't had anything to eat in a long time. Yeah, that's true. I can understand that. Um, but yeah, he decides that th- there's a funny thing where he, where he's deciding like I'm going to be the leader now or something like that. You know? Yeah. He has the whole thing where he's like it's the same thing that happened with Rand in the the previous chapter, right? Where yeah. He says, "Well, I've got to be a leader now," uh, and Perrin thinks, "Well, I've got to be a leader now." Yeah. What do you think that's about? I don't know. It's just this idea of sacrifice and nobility. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, if I was if I was to pick one of them to be the leader, I would probably pick Egwene. Me too. I mean, she seems like she's a she's a better big picture thinker in certain ways, and you know, she's got like a little bit of a of a detail oriented nature that means that she'd probably be good at like sorting out things. See, I would not choose Egwene because she still feels very immature to me. Uh-huh. And she's younger, I guess. Yeah, and there's a lot of I don't know if she's so much a leader as she's just. Trying to do the very bossy, I'm far superior to men thing that Robert Jordan does so well with the, with the women <laughs> characters in his book. How women be. Yeah, exactly. You know how women be. <laughs> Bitches be like. Uh, well, in this case, she gets on board with Perrin's plan, which is pretty good. Yeah. Which he is surprised by. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he makes a note. He's like, well, wait, what? what? Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're okay with this? Yeah. So that leads us right into chapter 23. Wolf brother. Yeah. And there's a picture of a wolfie. <laughs> what do you think that's symbolic of? <laughs> Could it be the wolves? <laughs> I don't know. I think there's something to do with wildlife. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's not a wolf. Mm-hmm. So Egwene and Perrin are traveling together, 
and they're trying to live off the land, but it's not working because they're not able to catch anything or, or find any real food to eat. Also, they learn the, the hazards of traveling pre-map quest. <laughs> like they're having a lot of trouble getting around. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it makes perfect sense. You don't really think about much about, you know, navigation in a place like this, but they have no idea where they are. Yeah, imagine if you were in the wilderness and you, you had left <clears throat> the Austin. Listeners, we're in Austin right now. Texas. And you're heading Austin, Texas. United yeah. States. <laughs> Earth. Yeah. Uh, and, you, and you needed to get to, say, Dallas. And you had decided that you were going to skip Waco and you were going to go cross-country. Could you do that? No. I mean... <laughs> I know it's north, right? But I probably would miss. Yeah, I I can see that. But I mean, they're trying. They're just trying to find a road, though, right? Once you find the road, you're okay. They're specifically avoiding roads. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because those are dangerous, and because, yeah. that's where the trolls would be. I'm sorry, I'm still distracted by Micah talking about using MapQuest because apparently it's 2004. <laughs> I, I said pre-Map Quest. You know, MapQuest is the earliest mapping technology. That we've no, ever you know, had, like, time is a wheel. So, <laughs> the MapQuest is both the past and the future. I'm just imagining them printing out the directions like my father-in-law. <laughs> so. They're traveling, and there's this interesting power struggle between Egwene and Perrin, where Egwene makes him ride the horse, and he doesn't want to ride the horse because it's a little horse, and the little horse hates carrying big old Perrin. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> bothers me. And she just me. bullies him into it. Like, I, I, Yeah, she just straight up won't take no for an answer. I thought he was being pretty reasonable about it. I don't want to wear the horse. Because that's what women be like. I know, I was going to say, is this another example of Robert Jordan writing women to like be like irrational and just like... I, I couldn't tell. Was he trying to say that Perrin was being unreasonably self-sacrificing and, and that Egwene was doing the right thing by forcing him to take his turn on the horse? It's possible, but it seems like, like, like from Perrin's perspective, it seemed like he kind of likes walking. Like, he he doesn't seem like it bothered him at all. Yeah. Plus, I feel bad for the horse. Bella, yeah, Bella is not a big horse, and Perrin no. is a very big dude. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Plus, he's got his axe, which but, has got added quite a little bit of weight there, too. That's true. Yeah. yeah. But depending on the depending on the variables... Perrin might be willing to walk himself into the ground, right? Until he can't walk anymore. Yeah, we're not sure. So... Does it actually save them any time to share a horse? I mean, they're still walking at the same pace, right? I think, yeah, because one of them is walking. Yeah. You so get to like, rest a little bit. Yeah. Are you yeah. Supposed to, yeah. I suppose so they could walk... I, I, they could walk longer without resting, I suppose. So maybe that's the practical answer is by trading, they can... They have to stop less. I don't, I don't know. know. So, uh, Egwene gets her way anyway. And they, they trade off riding on Bella. Uh, Egwene's a very stubborn person. And as they're traveling, she's trying to teach herself to use the one power. She's trying to, when they set when they stop for the night, she's trying to set fires using her mind. Which actually kind of works. But Perrin is like, stop doing that. What are you doing? Stop it. And I thought he was actually being pretty unreasonable. Because I agree. This is like, a, a, like he the way he's making fire is with a fireboat, right? Yeah. I don't know if any of you guys have ever done a fireboat before, but yeah, it's not. awful. That is a terrible experience. <laughs> like, I was a Boy Scout, and I've, done, I've made fires lots of different ways. A fireboat is by far my least favorite way to make a fire. <laughs> but I don't think his attitude is surprising, though, because where he's coming from, this tiny little village, they're so against the Aes Sedai, which I translate to be any woman who has the one power. So it makes yeah. sense to me but that he, he would not be down with her doing this. But he knows Egwene. I mean, like, she's... Like, like I get the Aes Sedai being... As, a, as an organization, untrustworthy. But, like, is she going to turn untrustworthy if she uses the one power? I mean, like, I don't make that connection. Maybe she, he does. She's literally playing with fire. <laughs> Ooh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel where he's coming from, but at this point, after all he's seen, and it, since it's a survival situation, I felt like he was being a little 
rock-headed about it. So I guess the question is, is Robert Jordan capable of writing writing about disparate characters together from disparate backgrounds who aren't in constant conflict of some sort? Mm, where they, they get along and they're not the same person? Yeah. Well, I suppose we'll find out I if guess you can do we that. Will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Has not yet not happened yet. But the best part's coming up. Yeah, well I was gonna say this this is a there is a pretty cool cool part's coming up. They have a I really like their little travel that they do. Because they're it's kind of it's picturesque. You know, they they see different kinds of terrain and they see these different kinds of ruins. Apparently there's just ruins everywhere in this world. Yeah, you know, like you know, they're literally going across area where nobody lives and they see a ruin of a town and ruin of a tower and they avoid them because the last ruin they were in was full of the evil <laughs> all devouring yeah. Yeah. and Elder and an evil all devouring mist monster. Yeah, that are only yeah. only tangentially related, both evil and just like kinda of hanging out together. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, but I, I enjoyed that. I like the, that little slice of the countryside in this world because it, you can tell that it's not, it's not the past. It, it's a world where, where things are constantly happening and, and they're always, the world is built on top of other worlds that have mm-hmm. existed in the past. Would yeah. be a nice little montage when they, when they adapt this to the screen. <laughs> yeah, right. Traveling <laughs> montage. Right, lots of helicopter shots and the <laughs> swelling strings. <laughs> yeah, there are lots of things they see that, that are described and we never really get an explanation about them except that, you know, it's it's a it's from an aged past, right? It's like, it could be, I mean, if we consider this like a far future book, then it could be like ruins of like, you know, something from today. We don't even yeah, know. Yeah, totally could be. Yeah. Some of the things they describe, you're like, yeah, I wonder what... Yeah, some of the stuff in Random Maths chapter I thought were really evocative of that too totally. so they they're starving because they can't hunt because they suck and there's no people around they don't see anybody but they do smell smoke and smoke uh, leads them to a fire and the fire is kept by a guy and the guy has caught six rabbits and he says basically i've been watching you for days and you guys are going to starve to death if you don't eat these rabbits <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah this this the, i like this guy he he, he like cracks me up yeah so elias machetta uh, who's just a mountain man. Although he's not in the mountains. He's a frontier man. Although I guess he's not in the frontier. He's just like a dude that's not dressed very well. <laughs> and, and like poor hygiene. Like he, does, yeah. he doesn't shave. Yeah, he's got a long beard, long hair. He's dressed all entirely in animal skins. And he caught six rabbits. That's a lot of rabbits. That's a lot of rabbits. Especially since they've traveled for days and not seen any. Unless he's just been like stealing all their rabbits. Yeah. <laughs> Every time there's a rabbit nearby, he's like, no, that's my rabbit. Yeah, and he's a... Uh, it's... <laughs> they, they said that uh, so Perrin comes in and meets him shakes his hand and sees that he's got yellow eyes cool so yeah I mean like what, yellow eyes the, you know, the, what, what else do we, what else has yellow eyes I mean like I don't know <laughs> jaundice I mean he could be jaundiced <laughs> I don't know I mean this I mean, this character <clears throat> it's called wolf brother and the picture is a wolf so you're saying that what, nothing, I don't, think, I don't think wolves I don't think wolves <laughs> have jaundice I don't understand what you're getting at no they drink a lot oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. those eyes liver failure <laughs> yeah and they and so he invites them in and feeds them because they're clearly starving to death. Mm-hmm. But when uh, oh, but when uh, Perrin sees his eyes, it tickles his memory, and that's like yeah, he's like, "There's something up with yellow eyes. <laughs> There's something that reminds me of." Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of what it could be. And they they eat his food, uh, and even Egwene eats it with grease running down her chin because they're so hungry. And they tell him that uh, they're going to Camelin. And Elias laughs out loud like, to, a, like, an um, insane degree. He's like, yeah. rolling on the ground, literally rolling yeah, on the ground. He rolls on the ground, and, like, his hat falls off, and he's crazy. Yeah, and they're getting really uncomfortable. Yeah, and they're like, oh, my gosh, well, we found a madman. <laughs> this guy's super crazy. But uh, the reason he's laughing is because on the line they're taking, they were going to miss Camelin, 
uh, and they were going to not see any other human habitation until they reached the Isle Waste. Yeah, they said they were like they were going like a hundred miles off course or something like that. Right. Wow, Which they I guess, suck. Yeah, <laughs> they do suck. Yeah, but especially because Egwene was talking about how back home she used to look at maps all the time, and because she knew that Shadar Logoth was not a place that was on any of the maps. So you'd think she would have had a better sense of where they were going. Honestly, like in my experience, again, kind of going back to my Boy Scout days, a map <laughs> has like very little bearing on where you actually know you are. Cause you know, maps in real life don't have you are here on them. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I know. I know. So like, they, you know, you can, you can use like a compass what and you like, take, when you buy the map, just write you are here on it. So, so you know, Oh, that's such a good uh, idea. She didn't, she didn't, well, I mean, she didn't think of that, obviously. <laughs> she didn't know she was going to be traveling. <clears throat> so yeah, like even if you have like a pretty good, Good understanding of where where things are on a map like you don't know where you are especially i mean like they watch down a river they don't even know where they started right so like it's really hard to navigate without any kind of frame of reference fair enough yeah i don't know if that's true in fantasy logic because you know it seems like in fantasy novels people always get around where they're going pretty easily but in my experience using a map is super hard if you, know, <laughs> you don't have a lot of extra tools mm-hmm. Yeah, and so in the middle of this conversation, as he's talking about how silly they are for trying to go to Camelin the way they are, uh, El- Elias's friends show up, <laughs> and they are wolves. Yeah. Big, badass wolves. Wait. And a lot of them. Are they friends or brothers? Well, he calls them his friends. No, I don't know. It's cool. Maybe they're wolf brothers. <laughs> I don't know. I don't understand <laughs> that reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his friends show up, and uh, of course this terrifies Perrin and Egwene, because wouldn't you be if these chest-high monsters came out of the darkness and started laying around at your fire. <laughs> yeah. And, appara- and apparently he says he can talk to them and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. He's like, they're my friends. I can talk to them. And, uh, Oh, and their names are feelings. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and they, they're wolves and they've got golden yellow eyes just like him. He's got yellow eyes. They take this kind of in stride, right? Like, I think it's interesting. I mean, they're obviously scared of the wolves, but they, they don't seem particularly put off by all of these things that he's saying at this point. Well, to be fair, they've, in the past week or even less, they've learned about Trollocs, Mirdral, Drakkar, uh, shadow mist monsters that kill. And yeah. so it's this true. is Maybe pretty tame. So guy yeah. to yeah. is like, okay, oh, cool. Hey. You can talk to something that I know is was real, that I knew yeah, was real before. They're thinking once you get outside the two rivers, you meet like a new thing you didn't know existed every week. Yeah. That's just what life is like <laughs> outside the two rivers. <laughs> Yeah, they, they have... I, I actually think they don't adapt to change quickly enough, considering all the things that they've seen so far. Mm-hmm. All the chaos that's been in their lives. They still kind of... I guess it's the two river stubbornness. They're they so still, stubborn, yeah. Yeah. They still cling to the way they think things should be. Yeah. So Elias introduces them to the to his friends, the wolves. Uh, and this, and the four wolves that come to the fire are just a few of them. Apparently there's lots of wolves all through the, the trees. And uh, Egwene and Perrin first look like they're going to panic or bolt, but the wolves growl at them. And Elias is like, don't do that. They'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Just calm down, or they'll kill you. <laughs> no, no, sit still, or they'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and the four that come to the fire are named Dapple, Burn, Hopper, and Wind. But Dapple is not really her name. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, her name is actually a feeling, because they, they don't talk in words. They talk in feelings, and it's actually the... What is it? It's the, the pattern that oh, at a midwinter some, dawn. Oh, I have this, yeah. <laughs> oh, you want, you want to do it? <laughs> no, go for it. Uh, it's something that means the way shadows play on a forest pool at midwinter dawn, with the breeze rippling on the surface and the tang of ice when the water touches the tongue and a hint of snow before nightfall in the air. But that's not that's not really it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just the way all that feels. <laughs> right. That's her name. 
But I guess that kind of makes sense. The, the wolves communicate in thoughts directly well, through their mind. They don't have words, right? I mean, like, they, don't have, mm-hmm. they don't speak English. So. Well, they, they can say bark and howl. And woof. And woof. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, Elias is very happy to explain all about talking to wolves. It's like he's been waiting for somebody to talk to him about this. <laughs> and, you know, he, he says he doesn't like humans, but he does seem kind of lonely. Yeah. And Elias says... Pretty much, he doesn't like humans yet. He doesn't. He avoids humans and he avoids towns. This is why he's out in the middle of nowhere. And he likes wolves. And the wolves like him because they, they like men that can talk to wolves. And Perrin can talk to wolves. He's and like, that's what? the point when Perrin's like, this guy's crazy. <laughs> Wait, I can do No, this guy's nuts. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But he can. The wolves say he can. And, and he does. Like, immediately. Perrin is, is hearing... He knows where the wolves are, and he knows which wolves go with which name without having to be told, because he can hear the wolves' thoughts. Yeah. And the wolves can apparently hear his thoughts, because they seem to respond to the things he says and does. There's one point when he's thinking about going for his axe, he doesn't actually do it, and the wolves start kind of, like, reacting to that thought. So I guess he's just never in his entire life been anywhere around wolves before? Yeah, I mean, I, suppose I wondered so. about this too. Like he, so, so the way uh, Elias described it, he said, "We know, oh, there's usually there were wolves following me around. There are always wolves around." Yeah, and Perrin. I thought I was cursed. Yeah, Perrin doesn't seem to have had that experience. So. Yeah, because he was a city boy. He worked for the blacksmith. It's not like he was out on the farm in the middle of nowhere like Randall's. Yeah. Well, but still, Two Rivers was not a big city. Sure. Then again, they did mention they were having wolf problems. It's true. Maybe they were just trying to. Hey, hey, parent! Hey, <laughs> hey, we're gonna kill this dude. <laughs> or maybe they just manifest later the, those powers. Yeah. Mm. Or maybe there were no wolves at all, and it was just that the innkeeper was a cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to find a way to insert that in here. <laughs> By the way, Branolf here is a cannibal. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag uh, Branolf here is a cannibal. So Elias says some interesting stuff. Like he says that wolves talking to men is older than people using the one power. It's older than history. It's older than everything. It goes back to the first day. Which is the first time we've heard anything about a first day. It's kind of like a, a completely different way of looking at history. Because everybody else says time is a wheel. Yeah. Feels very biblical. Yeah. When Adam names the animals. Yeah. And he, he, it's not a new thing. It's a very old thing. Yeah. And the wolves really like it. Really like talking to humans, I guess. Maybe. I wonder if it's if that was Robert Jordan's nod to the head to uh, C.S. Lewis, maybe. Oh, it could have been, yeah. yeah. He was definitely uh, definitely aware of those books. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, they try and give Elias their cover story about, uh, I forget, it was stupid. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they're, they're like, oh, we're from the we're from near the Blight, and we just came down. Oh, yeah. Saldea. We're from Saldea, and we decided to go see the world. Yeah. And Elias is like, that's completely BS. That's exactly <laughs> the kind of story Egwene would come up with, though, right? I mean, like, it <laughs> yeah. sounds like her when she's saying it. It's true. Uh, but the reason he knows it's BS, not just because it's obviously BS, is that the wolves <clears throat> smelled the Trollocs in your mind, and wolves hate Trollocs and half-men worse than anything. They, they would kill themselves to, to kill Trollocs and Halfmen. It's a pretty good ally. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. We want more of these people around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Perrin eventually tells him the truth about their story. So he starts from like, the beginning, though. I thought that was funny when he's like, you know, tell me what's really going on. And Perrin's like, well, you know, back when we were in the Two Rivers. And it's like, well, I mean, I don't know if I would have started there. but <laughs> <laughs> Well, first I got this job blacksmithing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, Perrin, I think we could probably skip like the first you know <laughs> six months of your, your life. Right, yeah. So I guess wolves have magic truth-sensing powers? Because it says Dapple called... Dapple. He says Dapple called BS on Egwene. Elias does. Yeah, he does say that. So yeah. maybe they do. I don't know if wolves can hear thoughts. It's unclear how it works. Can they hear thoughts of people who are not 
Wolf Bros. Mm. Well, and it could, it could just be that they can read Perrin's thoughts. And even though Egwene's telling the story, Perrin was thinking about something unrelated, so they knew, you know? Yeah. So this is all very interesting. They've met this guy who's got this other this other situation going on that's unrelated to what they're dealing with. And he offers to take them in. He says, why don't you just come live with me and the wolves? It'll be great. But they won't do it. They want to they wanna keep on their, their quest to go to Camelin and then Tarvalon. And so he agrees to take them to civilization, but Burn doesn't like it. The wolf Burn. Burn has a little argument with Elias. A silent argument and they have to stare down and then and Burn only kills about only Burn only cares about killing Trollocs. And so he takes off. Uh, and then the parent gets his first clear thought from a wolf as Burn takes off. And it's what is it? It's like pain and blood or something like that. Yeah, blood bloodlust or uh, hatred in the taste of blood. Yeah, so Perrin is one hundred percent a wolf brother. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, there's there's one other thing I wanted to mention. When Elias talks about his story, he mentions that he has he's had some run-ins with Aes Sedai. And it was kind of an interesting thing because mm-hmm. we hear a little bit more about the other Ajas. He mentions the red. the red Aja is trying to gentle him, and he accuses them of being from the black Aja, and they yeah. just like they get really pissed off when he says that, which I assume is you know the ones that serve the. Yeah, oh yeah, they serve the dark ones. So. Yeah, because we know that the Red Aja are the ones who uh, cure the guy, the men who have the one power. Yeah. And Elias yeah. is going back to this, well, it isn't the one power. This talking to wolves right. comes way before that. And, they, and he says they tr- they were going to try and gentle him. We don't really know what gentling entails. Yeah, to yeah. men who have the power. Doesn't yeah. sound good. Yeah. No. But he says it wouldn't have worked on him because his, his thing has nothing to do with the one power, which is interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. So, that takes us to chapter 24, Flight Down the Arenel. Uh What's the... I didn't write down what the... Oh, I didn't... So that is uh, a harp. Yeah, so uh, this starts out, as so many random chapters do, in a dream. <laughs> he's still having his spooky dreams. Yeah, and he's having these horrible devil dreams, which really sucks. Uh, he's in a strange place full of stone platforms all connected. And Balzaman is, is tracking him through this crazy like video game level of a, of a dream i was totally picturing the the thing at the end of Lab- labyrinth when uh when david bowie singing oh, his song yeah the it's like, escher thing. like the escher-esque kind of thing that's that's what i was picturing in my yeah, mind yeah that makes sense too uh but it's horrible yeah unlike <clears throat> that which was awesome yeah was... and balzaman is chasing him he's hiding and he thinks he thinks something dangerous and it switches to another thing he's in a hedge maze in like a hell world and the hedges are all thorns and stuff it's like the most metal place ever he's like walking on skulls <laughs> yeah the floor is skulls and the black thorns are are made made up the hedges uh, and he pricks his hand on one of the hedges and then he thinks he runs into Baalzaman and, and says this is just a dream and then it shifts again and uh, there's this crazy mirror maze, which is like a maze, but it's all mirrors, like a hall of mirrors things, where he sees his own face from all different directions, and he sees Baalzaman somewhere else. And uh, all I could think reading this was this would be like a sick 80s music video, <laughs> the way this is described, you know? Oh, yeah, totally. The, the, like, if you if you storyboarded this out, I think you could do like a really like perfect 80s, like a meatloaf video, maybe. Well, I'm seeing the, I'm also thinking the Take On Me video, too. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. That the video where, where the guy is racing with Balzaman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so then eventually he wakes up. Uh, all these dreams seem to have in common that there's a maze that he's running around in, and Balzaman is looking for him. But in this, well, in this case, it ends with Balzaman's face being transposed over his own or something, right? No, that's true. Yeah, in the mirrors, is his face and Balzaman's face. It's one face. Oh, oh. Well, what could that mean? <laughs> uh, and he wakes up. He's still on the uh, the ship. 
and his hand is bleeding from where he pricked it in the, the Blackthorn hedge maze. See, I call shenanigans on that because I've never hurt myself sleeping as far as I know, but I know when I really when I really need to pee, I'll dream about really needing to pee, and then mm. I'll wake up and need to pee, and I don't, like, blame the dream on causing me to need to pee. <laughs> so you think so he I had think dream he probably, <laughs> Yeah, I think while he was sleeping, there was, he's, he's on a ship. He probably got a splinter or something, and his brain just turned it into, while it was happening, into a, a rose as thorn. <laughs> oh, no, no. The devil gave me this wound in a dream. <laughs> that makes way more sense. It's like, well, you do have this, like, rusty nail right, right by your cot. I mean, because it's possible. No. It was the devil. You are literally sleeping on a wooden ship <laughs> full of splinters yeah. and other sharp things. Yeah, so they're on the the spray, and it's heading downriver nonstop, even night and day, uh, because the crew is afraid of Trollocs, and the captain is keeping them afraid of Trollocs by reminding them of the Trollocs every time they stop being afraid of Trollocs. Does this, like, like this, this, this... The way he described this actually kind of annoyed me. It's like every two days he puts the things up and it does exactly the same thing. Like, that seems a little silly, right? Uh, I guess. I mean, it's management. <laughs> every two days you hang up the, the trollic blades. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, trollic. You forgot about those trollic blades two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it doesn't make sense. But maybe it, like, it works a little while and it eventually it'll lose its effectiveness. And they, oh, okay, yeah. Maybe he it does a little bit less each time. Kill somebody with the trollic blades. <laughs> <laughs> That's what scares everybody. Well, I mean, if if someone died in the night, he said, "Well, looks like those trollics caught us again." Uber making, management tactics. <laughs> yeah. They're making their way down river, and Florin Gelb, the guy that Rand jumped on <laughs> when they first met all these people, is is trying to blame Rand, Matt, and Tom for the trollics, saying, "You know, the trollics showed up when they came," which is a really good argument, actually. I think he's onto something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, things haven't been excellent since they got there, right? Mm-hmm. Can I just say it's incredibly satisfying to me. Gelb keeps trying to tell this story, and nobody ever believes him. They just call BS on him the entire time, which I yeah. find very satisfying. Because even though there is some truth in what Gelb is saying, he comes across as a kind of a whiny yeah. loser. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's very satisfying that he's trying to stir stuff up, and the other guys are just very focused on, we're not here to portion blame, we're just... Getting as far away from these trollics as yeah, we can. Yeah, we're just doing our job. Yeah. It's true. It's it's good that that didn't... Yeah, that he wasn't able to rouse the crew against Rand, Matt, and Tom. So. Yeah, because I was imag- I was I was waiting for some sort of mutiny or something to happen, which I thought would have been very obvious and mm-hmm. uh, pedantic. Well, so. well, Tom seems to imply that, that mutiny is, like, likely. They're mm-hmm. like, I can't exactly understand why. I mean, I get that they're... Is it just that they're making, like, a really fast pace down the river? And yeah, they wanna... I think it's because he... Uh, Damon, Captain Domon is working them day and night, which is not normally what they did. Remember, they were tied up for the night when they first jumped on the boat. And and we kind of saw that mob mentality earlier when, at the very beginning, when the Evans Fielders were trying to drive Moraine and Lan out. This being motivated by fear to get rid of the strangers, the unknown. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, at, at least Tom is worried about that, and he seems to be a really good judge of, uh, of character, mm-hmm. of what's going on in the crowd. Yeah. So as uh, as part of their cover, because they've they've told everybody that they're a gleeman and his two apprentices, his two stupid apprentices, uh, they Tom starts training Rand and Matt in gleemaning, teaches them to juggle, teaches them to play music and tell stories, and this actually sounds pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It sounds much cooler than their life as a as a farm boys. Yeah, and apparently they're like not super happy about it. I'd be like, yes, let's do this. But, yeah, you know, they teach keep, me. Oh no, I don't want to learn to juggle. Yes, <laughs> I suppose I could go castrate sheep for. 12 hours straight, <laughs> or I could learn to tell this really cool epic story. Yeah. Yeah. Travel from yeah. town to town. Oh, you could learn to do backflips, or you could go, like, I don't know. Especially because when you think... Toe back, to back. 
the Gleemans seem to have a pretty sweet world. Everybody's super excited to see them. I bet, yeah. I bet, I bet Gleeman just crush it everywhere they go. You think they're like knee deep in, you know. <laughs> they like, totally are. Yeah. yeah. In honey pie. Yeah, in I'm honey just saying there's probably yeah. a lot of children scattered across this world with Double mustaches. <laughs> <laughs> Double <mini> mustaches. <laughs> I'm just saying, Tom sounds very dashing, even for an older man. That's yeah, and, true. And particularly, I would think that Matt would be super into this. Yeah, Matt seems to be perfect to be a Gleeman. Yeah, Matt is definitely not a straight life guy. He's not a normie. Yeah. He's like a, a chaos character. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt is acting... Uh, Rand says that Matt's acting yeah. pretty weirdly. Yeah, this whole chapter, Matt is acting not as cheerful, not as upbeat. He's whole, acting very sullen and suspicious. Oh, and and speaking of, there's that point. When, this is uh, we we talked about this earlier. They're they're going down the river and they see some like really interesting sights. Yeah, down the river they see they see whatever. Oh, does. They, a tower of metal. Yeah, they they, they a two hundred foot tower of metal. They, yeah, they off in the distance. It's just a glint, right? Yeah, and they're like, "What's that little glint in the distance?" And Captain Domon's like, "It's a giant tower of metal, but it never rusts, uh, and it's really cool." And there's no marks or openings. <laughs> yeah, do you think it's a spaceship? Yeah. Could be a rocket. I was wondering. I like you know that. Yeah, I, like I said, I, I'm still kind of thinking of this as a far future book because could this be just like the remnants of like a there spaceship could be. or something? I mean, especially would have markings though, right? Well, I it mean, would rust. It'd be eventually. Well, it depends on what it's made of, right? I mean, it's if it's made true. of aluminum, like aluminum doesn't rust. I don't think. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, they don't know. Yeah. And they're not stopping to see because they're just sailing on by it. And Matt's and, like, I wonder if there's treasure in it. Yeah. Right. Matt's really still really fixating on treasure. Indeed. He's like treasure. How about that? Uh, there's this wonder of the ancient world. Maybe there's treasure inside. <laughs> and uh, w- what's his name? Do- uh, Captain Domon's like, well, you want to talk about treasure? There's this other island that's yeah. definitely got treasure. And Matt's like, oh. Oh, he describes he describes all these cool things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he, yeah, he's like, this world is, uh, Captain Domon, this world is full of cool stuff. Like, here's this cool thing. Here's this other cool thing. Like, And the treasure doesn't matter, boy. It's it's seeing new things that's going to pull you from place to place, which seems like a pretty... Pretty good. He's got his head screwed on straight. You know, it's, yeah. it's a pretty pretty good outlook. Oh, I dig this captain for sure. Yeah, he's really cool. But Matt, of course, is like, ah, screw that. I want treasure. <laughs> uh, just totally blows him off. And uh, yeah, he mentions that there's a place where it's rumored to have great treasure, but uh, on the island of Tremal King, but no one will dig. And he talks about this other, like, it's this thing he describes, it sounds like a satellite dish, but it's, it's a, a big disc. Oh, I thought dish. it was maybe a Tesla coil. Oh man, that's what it's Because it's like a, 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 yeah, there's a metal spike in the middle, and if yeah, you're within yeah. a mile of it, you die. It's... Yeah, right? I mean, how do they keep people from going within a mile of it? Are there signs? Like, don't go, don't go past here, or you'll die? <laughs> maybe, or maybe people just die a lot. <laughs> yeah. Just, like, the, you know not to go yeah. there because there's like a, a corpse is strewn in a perfect circle. So that's, thing. It just, just sailing down this river, they travel between these giant statues in a very Lord of the Ringsy touch. Yeah. Uh, they travel between these the series of giant statues carved into the cliff faces on either side of the river ancient kings and the the oldest ones are on the north and the the newest ones are on the south and the oldest ones are kind of worn away almost to nothing and the kings get more and more defined kings and queens get more and more defined as you go south uh and and nobody seems to know what they are they're just these cliffs are carved into you know people yeah i mean probably the youngest ones are maybe a thousand years old yeah well it's lord of the rings but it also goes back to i know i mentioned on one of our previous podcasts uh c.s lewis in the very first book in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe series, The Magician's Nephew, they go to this ancient abandoned city, which I was comparing to Shadar Logoth. Uh, and they also there had, they weren't they weren't nearly as big, but they had these large carvings of kings and queens throughout history. And as time, you saw that it had been done over a very long period of time because mm. the oldest ones were not as well defined. 
Yeah, so, so it's the same kind of. Once again, I'm wondering. Kind of yeah, it, f- it felt a little yeah. C.S. Lewisy to me. Yeah, right. I'd, I'd yeah, it could be a, a straight callback. Mm-hmm. And it's anyway, it's it's very cool, and I I agree that this this guy Captain Domon, I just want to travel with him for a while because it seems like he's got the life. I I'd be like you know forget our quest, let's just hang with this guy because like this is. We're going to see some cool stuff. Yeah. yeah, I think Robert Jordan had a lot of fun writing this character. Yeah. He's the, in some ways, he's the stereotypical sailor. I and let me tell you me tall tales. Except <laughs> he can back it up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah this world is full of crazy stuff. I, I, I never got the impression that he was exaggerating either. I no. got the impression this is this is just cool stuff this guy's seen and it all is really out there. Yeah. And I think Rand actually feels the pull. He feels like yeah, that would be cool to see. But, of course, Matt's all like, well, what about treasure? Mm-hmm. Tell me more about your treasures. Yeah, you probably don't want me to go there because uh, you want to skip the treasure for yourself or something like that. Yeah. So a few days into the journey, uh, there's this interesting scene with Rand where he's up on the top of the mast and he's sort of riding it around and he just goes crazy. This is another one of his his little spells that he has. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he gets full, full <clears throat> what's the word? Full of exhilaration. He, yeah. he's, he's totally up. And yeah. he's up on the mast, and he's not even holding on. He's just got his arms and legs out, and he's just sort of sitting on the top mast as it waves back and forth in these great arcs through the sky. Like, reading this made my palms sweat. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, right? It, it, he's, he's looking down. He's 100 feet above the, <clears throat> the surface of the, the boat and the water. Uh, and he and Tom climbs up there to get him and says, you're freaking everybody out? Yeah. <laughs> and he looks down, and everybody's looking up at him. So he, like jumps onto the forest day and slides down this rope all the way down to the front of the thing without even thinking about it. This is crazy. Yes. This guy is like a sheep farmer. This is a really, I mean, like, yeah, the, the, he's lucky he didn't die. Yeah. Uh, but he, as he drops down from the rope, he, he comes down right next to Matt where Matt is sulking and Matt has a beautiful jeweled dagger with a ruby on the hilt. And then right. he's, he's just looking at it. Yeah. So we brought something back with him from Shadow Logoth. I'm yeah. sure that's not a How problem. How about that? Some treasure. Yeah. Our logo. Yeah. That's probably nothing. And Matt's been acting super shady cool. and obsessed with treasure. But Rand's like, cool. it's probably not a big deal. <laughs> and Matt's like, don't tell anybody. And Rand's like, you got it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> it's the bro code. You don't tell anyone about it. You're haunted daggers. Yeah, like, as, as they say, bros before uh, ancient demons, <laughs> whatever this guy is. Yeah. So, yeah. And then Rand realizes in that moment, basically, hey, what I just did. You know, sliding down the forest day like a madman was crazy, <laughs> which it was. It totally was. And uh, so they head on down the river, which takes us to chapter 25, The Traveling People. This is one of my favorites, I think. This is really interesting. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, it has a picture of a leaf. I think that's an Avendasora leaf. Yeah. It's a fancy magic leaf. So emblematic of the traveling people, probably? Yeah, I think so. Because they talk about the way of the leaf. Yeah. And so Perrin and Egwene, we're back to Perrin's point of view, they're traveling with Elias and his wolves, and it's pretty great traveling with the wolves. You know, they feed them, they look out for them. Perrin knows what's going on all the way around him because he's got that communication with the wolves. He's feeling super wolfy. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like a wolf bro. Yeah. <laughs> and there's an interesting, I wanted to point out, Egwene tries to bully Elias into riding Bella like she did Perrin, but Elias just like, Stares her down with his crazy wolf eyes. Yeah. <laughs> like, makes a wolf face at her, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she backs away and is, like, terrified. Which I, I get the impression is just sort of Eliza's go-to social interaction. <laughs> just stare like, at someone until they I shut up. I don't want to have this conversation, so I'm going to wolf them down. <laughs> <laughs> you think Perrin learned anything? Uh, about what? About how to deal with Egwene. 
stare her down with your wolf eyes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that'll work. I mean, I'm not sure if this is, is it just because his eyes are so creepy or is it some kind of like deer in the headlights predator prey effect that he has on her? I got the impression that it was like he, he had kind of like a, like a wolfy aggression kind of face to him, you know? Yeah. Resting wolf face. Resting wolf face, yeah. <laughs> so Perrin and Egwene, uh, they're having trouble dealing with the friendly wolves, even though it seems pretty great to me. It's mean, way better than their situation before. I mean, like, the wolves are clearly under control. They need to just get over it, right? I mean, yeah, like... I mean, they are, like, you know, chest-high killing machines, so... That's killing scary. Trollocs and Mirdral. Yeah. I know. These these wolves are, like, the best traveling companions they've had so far. <laughs> the, the ones least likely to kill them at this point are these wolves, <laughs> I think. True. Yeah, they feed themselves, yeah. too, like, and on, as traveling companions. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. And on top of that, they're protecting parents' dreams. Perrin doesn't have any devil dreams anymore because right. all his dreams have a wolf in them, looking like watching over him. That's right. There's all these. He has all these dreams where he's like doing normal things, and there's a, he's he sees the back of a wolf because the wolf is looking out. Yeah, the wolf is always looking away because the wolf is is guarding his back. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's. It seems like it's all plus. Yeah, this why would you ever want to leave the situation? This this is what they should do forever. Yeah. See, this is this is the second one. So the the other two guys should stick with Captain Domon. Just do that, and parents just hang with these wolves. I mean, like, this is this right. is pretty clear. And everybody lives happily ever after. The book should end here. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they're traveling with Elias, and they run into a, a new group of people. Uh, the Tinkers, who are camped in a, a near a forest glade. And Egwene is, like, immediately, like, laying down some hate on these Tinkers. Yeah, <laughs> okay. they're both kind of jerks. Apparently the Tinkers wear very bright clothing, and when they see that, Egwene makes a strangled sound, <laughs> oh, no, and it, it even takes Perrin aback a little yeah, bit, just, which I thought just was very because judgmental. of the way uh, the the older lady is dressed. Yeah. Even before that, she was saying like, "Oh, tinkers are tinkers are thieves. They'll steal your babies." It's like, it's like, what, where is this from? She's never met a tinker in her life, and she's just like land. Like she <laughs> she hates them worse than Terran Ford people or Terran fairy people. Yeah, uh, but it's you know what they're <clears throat> they're representing, of course, is the the Romani. Yeah, the, the Romani. Uh, yeah, they're, I don't know if it's Roma or Romani. Uh, I know gypsies I don't think they like very much. Yeah. But anyway, they, uh, that, that's what, that's what they're representing in the real world is these, these people who are rootless. They don't live anywhere. They travel around. And in the real world, of course, they're, uh, kind of despised everywhere because they're always, they're always other. And there's always rumors about them stealing children or stealing this, stealing that. It's just like that in this book. These tinkers, uh, they're, their reputation is that they're thieves and untrustworthy, but they they travel around and they're called tinkers in this book because they fix things, mm-hmm. which I guess not a lot of little villages do. They don't they don't fix things themselves. Yeah, it, it never really explains why they're so good at fixing things. But there's a a part where he t- talks about Mistress Luan having a tinker uh, tinker bended pot that was better than the pot yeah. that she had originally. Like they made it, they improved it somehow. Right. Which she's and she's literally married to a blacksmith. I know. So. Like you can see, he'd probably be a little like jealous about it. But you know, yeah, it definitely goes back to this whole idea of medieval. This being medieval England too. You had yeah, the, absolutely the traveling. Because that's something Roma. that that's been true basically throughout all of history. Is there's a lot of people that travel around, and we don't think about them as in terms of our history. Because they didn't, they don't write books. They don't write history. They don't win battles. Right. They just, they're just people without a whole lot of resources that, that travel, that, that don't have a permanent home, and they're almost always uh, treated very badly by the people whose countries they travel through. Mm-hmm. And that's true of these tinkers too. 
And so they, uh, Elias and, and Perrin and Egwene come up on them, and the, the Tinkers know Elias. He's, he's like old friends with them. Yeah. Uh, but they're, the Tinkers are led by Ran and Ela, I think the names are, something like that. Yeah, the, the, the Seeker, uh, Ran. I, I like their little exchange when they first meet. Yeah, do you know the song and something like that? Yeah, apparently the, the Tinkers are... Are looking for a song. That's their, like, yeah, that's why they very, wonder. They're, they're very. This is, I think, where Robert Jordan maybe diverges from from the real Roma. Is that the these people are very hippy dippy. They're they're super pacifist. They follow what they call the way of the leaf, mm. uh, meaning they basically they explain it. They go into it go into it at length, and that means never do violence to anybody, even to save your own life. Yeah. How do you think? Uh, so so when I was reading this, it felt a lot like. Robert Jordan was either was presenting one side of the of this argument or the other. Like it seemed like like he, which of these Perrin versus this this way of the leaf? They're they're having this like this kind of debate. Which, yeah, which so side do you think Robert Jordan falls on? So these people welcome Perrin and Egwene and Elias very nicely, right? They say, right. like come on in, treat them like with, family, basically. Yeah, sit on sit at our fire, have some of this wonderful vegetable stew that we're eating. They eat like four bowls of it. <laughs> yeah, and Perrin asks uh, is asking them about the way of the leaf, and they they explain it. That way, basically, never do violence to anybody because violence does mo- does as much harm to the doer as it does to the the victim. And Perrin says, you know, pretty much what anybody would say, I think. Uh, well, what if somebody hits you? You got to hit them back, right? Because uh, then they'll think they can just hit you all the time. And the guy's like, well, that's I don't know what he says. <laughs> it's it's better to to be hit or and run away than to like, yeah. Yeah, violence harms the one who does it as much as the one who receives it. Yeah, he says basically, I would feel bad for that person for hurting himself by hitting me. Mm-hmm. Which is a very interesting philosophy, because this is so far has been an extremely violent world that mm-hmm. they've been in. There's all kinds of war and monsters and stuff. And there's these people, the Tinkers, who, by the way, call themselves also the Tuatha'an, yeah. or the traveling folk, the traveling people. Right. And they follow the way of the leaf. Uh, and, yeah, by the way, they, they sound... Awesome to me, actually. They, they travel around in these cool wagons, and they wear bright colors all the time. They have like their, bright, their, bright their, garish, clashing colors. They're giant dogs that, like, just hang out with them and then, like, protect <laughs> yeah. them. and they're just sort of, they're hanging out in this forest, and it's like a commune. You know, there's some, there's just some people playing some music, and the kids are running around and playing, and some people are hanging out with the music, and some people are working, and it's it's a commune. Yeah, that's why I love this chapter. I actually, I actually really dig the way that they present the Tuatha and, and yeah. their, their their way of life. And it seems like Robert Jordan is very affectionate of these people, too. He doesn't ever get nasty about them or make fun of them or this mentality. And the characters, uh, the outsiders, don't make fun of it either. Um, Perrin is taken back by it, and Elias doesn't necessarily subscribe to it, but they don't get nasty or, or disdainful about it, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, they're just the, trying to understand it. He gives, he gives the impression that Elias and Ryan have discussed their philosophies at length because they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're old acquaintances, and they just don't agree. Because sure. Elias is definitely a pro-violence person. They, they go into such detail that I can't help but think if this, is like, this might be like a conversation that Robert Jordan has had with somebody and he, want, he thought it was interesting, so he wanted to present it in the, oh, yeah, the course of the story. But I, that's what it felt like to me. Yeah, it feel, going back to his own auto, autobiography, or his own background as a Vietnam War vet. Yeah. Do you think yeah. he would, do you think he would uh, possibly classify himself as a pacifist? After coming back from Vietnam, that's it. I hadn't even thought of that. But it, while he was in Vietnam, that was the when the the hippie movement, the Summer of Love, and all that stuff was happening. Totally, because Summer of Love was earlier than that. But 
bright colors. So yeah, the hippies living on communes with where they're they're all about peace and they're disdaining war and they they have abandoned the structures of society that everybody else lives by because they want to live in a better way according to their philosophy. And their job is literally well, this isn't hippies, but their job is literally to mend things that are broken. Oh yeah, it's true. Yeah. Everybody else breaks things, and they they mend things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the way and of the leaf. They're yeah. just looking for their song. Yeah, I, which is of course "Hey Ya" by you know, <laughs> as we all by know. Outcast. Hey yeah. Ya. <laughs> uh, we in this age know that the song which will bring on har- harmony and paradise is "Hey Ya" by Outcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Shake it like the Polaroid picture. Hey. Yeah, so, so if I were in that, I'd it's present very that convincing. Song. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, seeker. I do know the song. <laughs> Shake it, One, shake two, it, three, shake four. <laughs> my baby, don't my mess baby around. Don't mess. <laughs> How would Tom tell it? My baby, don't. Well, mess it depends around. on if he's doing in high chant or middle chant. <laughs> True. Yeah. Yeah. They talk about how they're they have like a mission. They're searching. They're searching for a song, and they think this song will bring about paradise. Uh, and it's sort of it feels like not even something they're really doing. You know, they just ask everybody about the song in kind of a ritual way, but it's not like they think they're they're going to find the song around the next hill. Well, they said that it's something they've been doing for thousands of years. Like, it's, I think they said three or four thousand years. Yeah. Since the breaking of the world, I think is what they said. Mm-hmm. I will say that of all the people we've met so far, these people's life seems the best so far. Yeah. They seem they're... super content. I mean, yeah. we've never seen, you know, what it's like to be a Tuathon in like a conflict situation yeah i'm sure there are times it really sucks to be there yeah, and home. people the other people definitely don't like them right but they're but what i love about them is they're so accepting they accept elias who is a total pariah on society being yeah. what he is yeah they accept rand and yeah. egwene immediately like literally clasping egwene to her bosom that's as a, a child that's a good point yeah they they know what elias is and you could tell that they don't like the wolves mm-hmm. they think it's weird they're like you're not bringing your friends here are you but they still invite him to to sit down and eat with them and yeah. treat him like an old friend. These might be the only people who accept Elias that he that he you know knowing what he is and still yeah. accept him. That's a really good point. Yeah, but he but you know Elias still seems as if he doesn't especially care for them. Like, I think he, he, I think he's just being like it's his gruff demeanor. I think he came here on purpose, right? He knew. Well, he didn't though. Remember they they said they had to convince him. Like his his no. initial impression was like oh. I know who's in here. Let's keep going. You know, I don't want to meet these tinkers. And then Egwene was like, no, let's let's go see him. Or our parent, I can't remember. One of them was like, no, yeah. no, we should go camp with these guys. Why not? Mm-hmm. He's like, fine. You know, he, did, he didn't seem like he was yeah. in, interested to meet them. But he didn't, I mean, they didn't have to twist his arm or anything. And That's true. I mean, he was calling the shots. He, they could have avoided them if they wanted to. I get the impression that there's, that there's a history there as well. That, like, they, I don't think we, well, we... At this point, we definitely don't know what yeah. it is. But there's like a, a hint of... Maybe Ryan or Rain, however you say it, is is thinking about or is is about to say something, and then uh, Elias gives him a look, and he changes what he's saying. To That's right. Yeah. So Ryan friends. definitely knows some, a little bit more about Elias than we do. Right. Uh, anyway, they they sit down with the the tinkers and have a really nice time, sort of eating this great vegetable stew and and smoking this amazing tobacco and just watching the sunset, and it, it sounds paradisical, you know. Yeah. yeah. And. And uh, Egwene uh, is quite taken with the the grandson of Ryan and Ela, Aram, who is dark-eyed and handsome and moves like he's about to start dancing at any moment. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds Perrin of this other guy back from uh, Two Rivers who just like was a real ladies' man. Yeah, and uh, Aram 
locks onto Egwene. <laughs> yeah, it does. Like, immediately. Like, he saw her from across the camp, and even his grandparents are like, why are you eating with us like you never do? I think I know why. <laughs> <laughs> and Aram is giving her the hard sell on the way of the leaf, you know. And uh, and he has a little, kind of a little fight with Perrin, and it doesn't seem like Perrin is even trying to pick a fight with him. It's just Perrin doesn't like this guy because he's so smooth. Yeah. And, yeah, our, our, and, and I think that they, uh, his grandparents, Rain and Ela. Mentioned that they, that he's a little aggressive for a um, a, a tuathon. Yeah. yeah, just like just like Egwene, he's eager to see the world. Yeah, right. Which is hard to do if you're a pacifist. True. Uh, so Egwene goes off and just dances with him all night, which Perrin initially is a little put off by because he doesn't like Aram, but uh, I think he's he's okay with it after all. He doesn't own Egwene. Yeah, and he. I mean, you know. I, He's not jealous or anything. He seems, he seems like he's fine, you know? Yeah. And I, I think at first he was a little concerned. He's like, well, if they're, they're following the way of the leaf, he's not going to hurt her, so. Right. Uh, but while that's happening, uh, Ryan tells Elias of uh, this story that they've heard, that all the traveling folk have heard, because apparently there's a lot more groups of traveling folk than just these people, that uh, they were traveling across the Aiel Waste, which shocks everybody. Well, sorry, it shocks Perrin. Yeah, because um, nobody crosses the Aiel Waste. Yeah, because they get killed by the Aiel. And uh, but the, the traveling folk apparently have a free pass to cross the Isle, the Isle Waste, no problem. And they, he tells this story that they've been passing around that this group of Isle, uh, well, or specifically one Isle that's coming back from the Blight, has, has said this this crazy stuff that, that we don't really understand what it means. Says uh, that so, uh, Sightburner wants to blind the eye of the world and slay the Great Serpent, and that this this story was so important that the Isle warrior got over her disgust of the traveling folk to tell them uh, about it because normally the the isle hate the tinkers yeah and uh told them that, that this this story about Sightburner and the eye of the world and slaying the great serpent uh and they they ask elias do you know what that means and he's like nope i just live out in the woods how <laughs> would i know my parent knows what that means or well doesn't know what it means but he knows some of those words these are things he's heard in his dreams uh, are they? Yeah, the eye of the world oh, yeah. is something that that Balzaman mentions. He talked Balzaman in in uh, their first dream, I think, mentioned killing the great serpent. Yeah, so that that's this is more evidence that there's something going on in this world. Yeah, and this is what I think they said it was two years ago, right? Uh, was it? I think it was two years ago. Oh, so soon as as recent as two years ago. Yeah, interesting, and it's going on even in even in the the part of the blight that touches the Isle Waste. Uh, it's a big problem. Yeah, so we. We have more hints that there's something something coming. Right. Okay. Is there anything else you guys want to cover? I think that's about it. Oh, we know that... I mean, you could... I guess we could mention the fact that uh, Egwene is... She had her good time, but she felt guilty about it, I think, because when she came back, she burst into tears, and she was like, tell me they're all alive. No, oh, like, yeah. She felt really bad about having this, this nice night out when... It, as far as they know, everyone else is just dead. Right. But she should get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, people die a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true. Which is a, a nice moment of humanity for Egwene, because she's been sort of sort of this pushy person for a long time. It's nice to see that she actually does have some human emotions. All right. That was uh, chapters 21 through 25 of The Eye of the World. Next time we're going to cover chapters 26 through 31 of The Eye of the World. I am Jeff Lake. That's at Jeff underscore Lake on Twitter. I'm Alice Sullivan. I'm Micah Sparkman. Uh, if you have any uh, questions, comments, or feedback, please send them to hello at thedragonreread.com. And 
Uh, please share us to anybody you think will like us. Give us good reviews. Uh, if you like us, if you don't like us, don't give us a review. Uh, and, you know, like us on Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media. Or in real prefer. life. Yeah, or in real life. You can like us in real life, and that would be even better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, until next time. The, the light, light illumine you. you.